Hello and welcome to LPO Offstage. I'm Yolanda Brown and this is the podcast that uncovers the world of classical music with the amazing members and friends of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Well, in today's episode, recorded backstage at the Royal Festival Hall, so please forgive us if you hear any background sounds. It is buzzing here, which actually is really, really nice after the last couple of years. Uh, We will be discovering, and get this, a subject very close to my heart, we'll be discovering the role of the saxophone and jazz within the orchestra. Now, I'm joined by saxophonist Joe Lovano and double bass player Tom Worley. Great to see you, Joe. And Tom, welcome. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, Joe, at the time of recording, you're playing composer Doug Cuomo's new saxophone concerto with the LPO tonight. You've just come from rehearsal. How'd it go? You know, we made a take at the (laughs) rehearsal today. Felt, felt really beautiful. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And, and Tom, tell us a bit about you and your involvement with the LPO. I am a double bass player with the LPO. I've been a member since 2018. I've actually been working here as a, a freelance or an extra player since about 2006. But in my spare time, I also play a lot of bass guitar, a lot of jazz, some pop, some soul. And I'm also currently splitting my time with the orchestra by doing a master's part-time at the Guildhall in jazz. Brilliant. Well, I just want to take us back to tonight. Well, it's fresh in your mind, Joe, before I take you down memory lane a little bit with this new piece, which for us here in the UK and in Europe is the European premiere. What can we expect from, from this piece? It's like really a beautiful piece of music that leaves a lot of room for me to be expressive within. Mm. It's called A Raft, the Sky, the Wild Sea. And it's really about the journey to the promised land through the generations. So there's three movements, and each movement tells a story. And I have, I would say, maybe 10% of written themes to interpret. Mm -hmm. The rest, I'm just following the score and uh, improvising throughout. Now, I love that you're improvising tonight. I mean, that is the essence of jazz. It's how we speak, how we conversate. How does improvisation work with an orchestra that obviously is reading their scores? They're not improvising, are they? They're playing their parts. Jazz is an idea about spontaneous composition within the music, whatever that piece might be. It could be a a song form, it could be the blues, it could be completely open for you to create spontaneous harmonic sequences and tonalities that you vibrate on. So it's, it's not any different for me than improvising with a quartet piano, bass, and drums, or just bass and drums, or just in a duo, where you're feeding off of each other's ideas, Mm. and you're trying to breathe together. So to play with an orchestral setting, you have the energy of more people and tonalities that are vibrating around you, and that inspires me to try to uh, blend in different ways, and Mm -hmm. in a written piece like this there's all the dynamics are there you know there's a lot of detail 
So for me, it's about listening and creating music within the music. A piece of music like this where every time we play through it, I'm learning more and more about what everyone else is playing. Nice. So I could fit in and, uh, and develop ideas and an approach about each section as we're moving along. You answered my question there, because you made that parallel between the quartet, you know, and, and the orchestra. And I guess as, as a bassist, if you're playing in the jazz form, you know, the saxophonist might play something that leads you to play something else. And I love that kind of organic feeling that you get when you're improvising in jazz. But you wouldn't necessarily have that there, but you're saying you're picking out different things each time. Each time through is a new uh, experience and exploration, really. My first time to the UK was with the Woody Herman Band, 1977. I was like 24. We played two weeks at Ronnie Scott's and then toured throughout the UK. And playing with Woody Herman's band at that time, for me, that age, learning how to not only blend in a large ensemble, the saxophone section, you know, and rhythm section, and brass, to use the written music as a springboard into your solo moments. That was the beginning for me of really experiencing trying to make a solo within a piece of written music that uh, sometimes sounded like I was reading yes. <laughs> my part instead of creating it, but it was about creating it. Tom, how's your experience of sort of leaving the classical world a little bit in your, in your studies and then embracing this, this world of improvisation? What's been your take on it? Well, I suppose I've always done a bit of improvisation. You know, I've played bass guitar for many years and pop groups and wedding bands and things like that. So I've always had a bit of an experience with it. But uh, since I've been studying, I've found that I've been much more clued into what the other instruments are doing, particularly in terms of harmony. Just the other day we played uh, Rosencavalier Suite. And um, there's actually a clip of the bit I'm about to talk about on the LPO Instagram that I just got kind of obsessed with for a few days. And I wrote a little jazz style chord chart to it and took it into my harmony lesson and it's just made me realize that each genre does intersect really well there's jazz you can find in Bach there's classical music you can find in pop that's really interesting for me because you've brought it all together made the world a harmonious place in that response and I, I love it so what is the place of the saxophone in the symphony orchestra as a saxophonist myself I'm always looking for why does the saxophone not feature more in the symphony orchestra? Joe, do you have an answer for me? Well, it's, it's up to the composers to hear the possibilities in the music. The saxophone, well, the woodwind family is, is amazing to live within. For me, I played clarinets and flutes and saxophones, but the range of the saxophone from the sapronino to the contrabass saxophone there's many tones and colors and areas. It's like the range of a piano. It's up to composers to hear those things and to have an imagination and, and uh, be able to write for that. For me, the role of the, of the saxophone is as a soloist. I want to create my part as a jazz musician. And what does that mean, jazz musician? You have to develop your technique and sound and approach and tone 
like a classical musician would on their horn and get around your horn in all 12. <laughs> nice. And in jazz, all 12 means a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Every tone for me has all 12 in it. The possibilities of turning that one note, whether it, let's say it's a C, mm -hmm. and be able to use that C in all keys in harmony. From idea to idea, that C could change meaning and you're in different keys every time. For me, that study is a deep exploration and something that is an ongoing process of development. And when you really play with players that inspire you to hear new things all the time, as a saxophone player, that's coming from drummers. That's coming from bass players. That's coming from piano players. It's coming from singers. And how you can uh, be that on your instrument. Everybody's a drummer. James Brown said that. Well, he knew. <laughs> he, he knew, knew what, what he was, was happening. About. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Tom, in your experience with the orchestra, have you had the saxophone join? the orchestra a lot? Is it that it's not necessarily a, a team player as in should be in the section and it should be up front? How is the saxophone used? Well, this is certainly the first time that I would have seen the saxophone at the front mm -hmm. as a soloist. But we often get pieces like um, West Side Story, which the orchestra is playing tonight. Some Rachmaninoff has got some really nice sax parts. It's still an unusual instrument. And I suppose that's probably because it's a relatively new instrument in relation to some of the other instruments in the orchestra. Mm -hmm. A comparison with me would be, you know, the bass guitar was only invented in the 50s and there is now starting to be a few pieces with bass guitar in, in the orchestra. There's going to be one tonight by oh, of course, uh, yeah. Derek uh, Skype's piece. It has some electric bass guitar and it's really been great to hear it be rehearsed and uh, to see how it fit in and the way he wrote for it beautiful. There's a certain point to the beat. It grounded a lot of inner parts that were happening in his writing, you know. It's an interesting thing playing a bass guitar in an orchestra where you place yourself within the beat. With a double bass, you know, we're not the loudest instrument in the orchestra, so we have to often play quite ahead to be heard in a large acoustic, especially you know, over a huge distance. But with bass guitar, you've got a volume knob on the <laughs> instrument itself. So where do you place yourself within that beat? You know, so many great bass guitarists have got this down to a fine art. The one that comes to mind is one of my favorite musicians on the planet, Pino Palladino. You listen to his playing with D'Angelo and it's so far behind the beat. But if you were to do that kind of playing in an orchestra, it would fall apart. So it's just something to be considered when you're playing electric instruments mm -hmm. in an orchestra. And, you know, on this podcast, we, we've uncovered that the LPO really is a family. You know, it's, it's a wonderful family. Everyone hears each other. They move together mm -hmm. so well. Um, how have you seen, Tom, the LPO adapt and embrace musicians they come to join, like Joe, and allow him then to hear these colours, feel these colours? What kind of changes do you see in the orchestra when they approach music like this? Well, I mean, certainly there's been kind of an excitement <laughs> leading up to your, your turning up mm -hmm. here. 
people have been talking about, you know, they, they saw you at Village Vanguard on tour. And I think someone's brought a record in for you to sign. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then people have just been, you know, checking out albums and, and listening a lot, which is quite difficult to do in, when you've got so much music you have to turn over. We do two concerts a week, sometimes three or four. Mm. And that's a lot of listening to do. It's one thing to go and listen to a piece, but then to go and check out someone's entire discography just to get excited about you being here. That's something I've definitely noticed. Mm. And then any change in the approach that they have to playing, I guess you can tell me as well from rehearsal. You've told me the nice bits, Joe, but has there been any point where you've been playing, "Ah, I need this? Is there anything you've had to ask for in the rehearsal? No. I have to say, Joshua Weilerstein is like an amazing conductor. He's a young cat with a beautiful energy and a great beat and a memory about uh, how to rehearse, to play through a piece and then to go back and zero in on little sections here and there. And I haven't had to say a word, you know. Now, Douglas Cuomo is also here and he participated in the rehearsals also. So they had a, a... a nice dialogue about things, you know. What I'm finding so nice is it's a really young orchestra and everybody's got a great energy and are are, uh, involved in the music that they're playing. Mm. The orchestra is just phenomenal, man, in the tone quality and the dynamics of the presentation, a great percussion section. Yeah, it feels really fantastic. (laughs) One of the things to be considered as well is we're not used to any improvisation in the orchestra, so it can be quite a scary place to be if you're not used to that. Yeah, it definitely could. And there's, like, for me, there's no influence that I've heard uh, for me to, like, uh, try to emulate or Mm. anything. It's all about being yourself, you know? One thing I did one time that was real interesting and great with uh, Sir Simon Rattle conducting the Birmingham Symphony, This was in 1999. Recording was called Classic Ellington with Luther Henderson's orchestrations. But now I came with a group from New York with Jerry Allen on piano, Mm -hmm. Peter Washington bass, Lewis Nash on drums, Joshua Redman and myself on tenors, Bobby Watson on alto, Clark Terry on flugelhorn, and Regina Carter. Oh, yeah. And we came from New York, and we played with the symphony with Sir Simon conducting. This was, I think, just before he went to Berlin, you know? And uh, that was an amazing experience. Because now we're playing with a full symphony, but with a rhythm section, yes. too. And the way he handled that and dealt with the music, and especially this uh, Luther Henderson's orchestrations, for Ellington that he wrote for Ellington. That was an amazing experience, and uh, I learned a lot. Was the compromise on both sides, if you like? Well, you know, you follow the conductor, but the conductor has to follow you. Mm -hmm. And that's how Doug's piece is written for me, too. There's a lot of moments where Joshua is following me in my phrasing, in my uh, interpretations of uh, the written themes. And then there's moments where I'm following him in, uh, in his rhythm of the beat and uh, the timing. It's about timing. I'm really interested in how you 
end up adapting or changing yourself when playing in these different styles. So, Tom, first of all, you know, you've, you've got the benefit of both. You're, you're, you play with the orchestra all the time and then you adapt to jazz and, and what you're learning now. What are some of the shifts that you have to change in yourself as a musician or do you have to shift at all? Well, I suppose the obvious thing would be predominantly when I'm playing jazz, I'm not playing with a bow. Mm. There are exceptions. You know, Christian McBride is an incredible player with a bow. John Clayton. Yeah. But most of the time I'm playing pizzicato when you're plucking the string. And it's in a slightly different style pizzicato than I would do in the orchestra. The orchestra, I want a very round sound that's going to carry throughout a hall. But the pizzicato I would do for jazz is very direct. The hand turns around less of a right angle to the bass and it's a thump sound because you're a rhythm instrument. Yes. So you would pull your finger across the string and you'd actually sometimes hit the fingerboard underneath a very percussive sound and it would drive a band forward and the orchestral pizzicato would be a thicker part of the finger making a boomier sound so I'd, I'd maybe have my hand a bit further up the instrument we'd breathe together as a section because that's another important thing is I've got to play a pizzicato with eight other bass players it's often very difficult so we breathe as a section and I'd do a nice round sound without hitting the fingerboard underneath. And is there ever a point where that knowledge, you flip it on its head and think, well, actually, I'm going to bring a different tone here. Absolutely, And having that jazz knowledge or having that classical knowledge has really helped. If you're in a jazz quartet and you want to make a nice round sound, maybe for an end of a ballad or something, you want that note to ring on instead of just being rhythmic and percussive. You want that sound to just ring on I like to use my bottom bottom string. I've got an extension on my bass. that get three or four extra notes. Nice. And I like to make a nice round sound at the end of a ballad or something. And how about for yourself, Joe? I mean, you have a tone that generations know and love. And so when you come away from sort of a strictly jazz setting to something like this, do you just bring yourself or do you feel yourself adapting sound and, and tone? I want to get the deepest, richest tone in all registers, in all volumes. That's a constant, no matter what setting. And then what really makes your sound is your approach about rhythm and melody, uh, how you play through harmonies, how you uh, attack and finger your instrument, you know? when you're going down the horn, down on keys and popping the keys, or when you're lifting up into tones, you know, there's articulations that happen with tonguing, and there's a lot involved, you know, in in really developing a sound. Can you give us a bit of a technical lesson here? What do you mean by popping keys? Well, when you pop keys, you're playing down on the instrument with your fingers. And it makes a popping sound. And it makes a popping sound. If you're not blowing into the mouthpiece, you can hear the articulation, okay? Uh, When you blow into the mouthpiece and the way you tongue and attack the reed, uh, the combination of that popping and the way you tongue uh, gives you more percussive sounds. So if I'm playing in in a... real more straight ahead kind of a situation, 
I have to pop my keys. I have to play with a certain articulation that is going to blend and fit in with the piece of music and uh, articulate accordingly. I could play in a legato fashion and tongue within a phrase, tonalities that I want to stand out. Things that I've learned from playing with a few singers, you know. I did a beautiful recording with Abby Lincoln where she really said certain words a certain way. You know, you could say, I love you. Mm. Or I love you, <laughs> or I love you, or I love you. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to yes, say things. Yes. Even in this piece, A Raft, the Sky, and the Wild Sea, I'm using those ideas because, you know, you develop your story mm. about who you are as a musician. And then whatever setting you're in, you have this... Uh, there's a lot to draw from, from your experiences, you know. I see nodding coming from you here, Tom. What led you to then, from your orchestral knowledge and your orchestral experience in classical music, go to do a postgraduate at the Guildhall School of Music? It was actually when I did the classical undergrad at Guildhall many years ago, I always thought I would like to do a postgrad in jazz after I left, but I've been quite fortunate to have fallen into some work here in the LPO and it's just kind of taken a back seat but it was actually the lockdown, the COVID lockdown you know, we didn't play as an orchestra for, I don't know how many months five months, six months mm. and when we are working it's a constant turnover of repertoire two, three concerts a week, There's lots of stuff to learn lots of stuff to be excited about learning but when you're left with a blank diary I spent a few weeks playing a lot of Bach on the bass that transferred quite easily into locking myself away and putting some jazz licks into my playing, playing slap bass, recording myself. I actually set up a recording studio in my house. Nice. And I thought, I want to do this properly. One of my teachers a few years ago, a great bass player called Robin Malarkey, said, to get anywhere, you've got to surround yourself with like-minded people. Mm. And I think that's what I've done by going to the Guildhorn and studying again with lots of people who are keen to learn as much about improvisation as possible. Where do you see it going from here, though? Do you think you'll live the double life, or as I'm learning now, there is no double life, but, you know, continue your orchestral playing and playing... Yeah, jazz? absolutely. I, I like the balance of everything. A nice balance between doing a few, few pop sessions, some jazz playing, and then also making sure I see lots of my friends here in the LPO. Man of many hats, I like that. <laughs> so I started off my introduction to this episode talking about the saxophone in classical music. And I guess when we say saxophone, sometimes we mean jazz within classical music. Do you have any other pieces that you could recommend to our LPR stage listeners to check out? I suppose aside from the obvious, which would be West Side Story, which we're playing tonight, I mean, there's loads of Vorschach that features quite a lot of what you would call jazz harmony or licks. My favourite bit is the end of Vorjak 9, the New World Symphony. The bass part plays a boogie-woogie bass line. Doom, 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 doom. So that's, that's worth looking out for. Nice. Actually, in my, in my harmony classes at Guildhall, we've been actually mainly studying classical pieces because they're so interconnected. So pieces like Verklatenacht, 
by Schoenberg or something I heard the other day, Beethoven's Sonata Number no. 32, Piano Sonata. It sounds like Scott Joplin. It's remarkable. It's swinging. It's got some interesting kind of dominant chords. And the other way as well, there's quite a lot of classical music within jazz or pop. In the pop world, I'd say one of my favourite moments is the introduction to Wherever I Lay My Hat by Paul Young. Is a direct quote of the Rite of Spring in the bass part. And then you have Bach chorales in Kenny Wheeler's music. That's one of my favourite albums is, you know, music for small and large ensembles by Kenny Wheeler. I'm sure you know that album. The chorale in that is beautiful. And then also Jacques Lussier plays Bach in a direct jazz context. They do meet. The two worlds do meet. Mm. Uh, and for yourself, Joe, I mean, you've, you've shared so wonderfully with us today about experiences that you've had with different orchestras and different players coming together and creating something fresh and new. I guess what you're playing tonight is an example of that. Is there anything else you can direct us to? Well, for me, the, uh, the first thing that I really heard that, it, that I embraced was Stan Getz' focus. He improvised throughout the whole piece. Eddie Sauter did the orchestration. It was like kind of a chamber orchestra. No rhythm section, but on one piece, Roy Haynes joined him and they improvised together, drums and tenor with the ensemble. Charlie Parker and Strings, mm. okay? Now those yeah. are standard famous songs, but the approach and the way the, the music was written was fantastic. Some of those were uh, things that, that I really was inspired by. Then through the years, creating a few sessions of my own uh, with Strings and Woodwinds, my Celebrating Sinatra, with many album orchestrations and string quartet and woodwind ensemble. One of my favorite albums of yours with orchestrations would be Rush Hour. Oh, and I was just going to mention <laughs> Rush Hour with is Gunther that, Schuller. Is it? Yeah, with Gunther Schuller. Um, yeah. My favorite part of it is that, well, that first tune, the kind of combination of the Hollywood strings kind of soaring above everything, mm -hmm. and then the unison between voice and flute. Right. Yeah. Such Judy, a nice orchestration. My wife, Judy Silvano's on that, and uh, yeah, Prelude to a Kiss. Mm -hmm. The way uh, Gunther did his or the orchestrations for that. Gunther Schuller was someone for me that uh, I studied with and really um, had a chance to collaborate with. And when he had his 75th, which I think was in 2000, he asked me to join him here and we, with the London Sinfonetta. Mm. We did a few concerts of some of Gunther's music. On this rush hour, he did orchestrations. I had him, um, we chose a repertoire. We did an Ellington, mm -hmm. Prelude to a Kiss. We did Thelonious Monk's Crepuscule with Nelly that he wrote this amazing, from contrabass clarinet to piccolo. Oh, yes. Like the whole range of the piano and wrote Thelonious, <laughs> you know? It was something, wow. you know? Uh, we did a Charles Mingus, Peggy's Blue Skylight, and uh, Ornette Coleman's. Working with Gunther through the years has been amazing. There was one time I did, he, he did a, a, something called Journey Into Jazz. Mm. And one time I, I performed this with him, with the Wheeling, Wheeling, West Virginia Symphony. 
And we played this piece, and at the end, Gunther conducted the Star Spangled Banner, <laughs> right? And we just sat there. We were kind of in the front with him as three horns and uh, bass and drums. <laughs> and the energy and the power that he conducted <laughs> the Star Spangled Banner with. I was never on the stage with anything so powerful <laughs> like that. I still remember that like really vividly. And that, wow. that was a while ago. That was back in, I don't know when that was, in the 80s or something for me. You know, Have you heard the um, Whitney Houston Star Spangled Banner? I think it was from the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, I probably did, yeah. I, I don't yeah, know whether yeah, this yeah. is correct, but I think it was arranged by John Clayton. Oh. Hmm, could so the, the string yeah. writing and the reharmonization is mm. just astounding. Oh, beautiful, yeah. Yeah, well, John, John's really, uh, he's a total Thad Jones disciple. And... Uh, his sound, the way he, you know, writes for big band and strings, has a lot of roots in uh, in the music, you know. And uh, you mentioned before also the way he plays with the bow as a soloist and just his his presence and tone. I think he had a job in uh, an orchestra in Rotterdam as principal bass. I think. Mm. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think he, I think you're right. Uh -huh. Well, thank you, Joe. I mean, just to have your your input and the way that you've sort of spoken about your approach today has been so eye-opening. I know. Thank you so much. I think my final farewell question to you both would be, jazz meets classical, classical meets jazz. What would be your word of advice to listeners who maybe are only party to one side of the fence to tell them the great things that can happen when jazz and classical meet? I say the number one rule is listen to as much as you can in as many different styles and uh, listen to it lots. You know, the first time you hear something, it might seem weird, but just embrace it. And Joe, any words of advice for people that want to branch out and feel the difference? Well, I, I believe it's, it's all one. And when you listen to classical music, if you're listening to Mozart or, or Bartok or Stravinsky or whatever, they're the ones that are improvising. They're just writing it out for everybody <laughs> to play. <laughs> Absolutely. So there's improvisation from note one on the page. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Joe and Tom. It's been wonderful to hear your process, but also hear how we can embrace classical and jazz together. So thank you both very, very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having <laughs> us. Yes. Beautiful. Well, that's it for now from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Joe Lovano and Tom Worley for discussing jazz, crossing genres and my own instrument, the saxophone. So interesting to hear about the approaches, the colours, the tones and how we can all work together. Please do get in touch on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and thank you so much for listening. Do join me for the next episode of LPO Offstage, and I'll see you then. <laughs>